0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we're gonna be continuing our series, our occasional series, I should say, on the economics of various countries around the world stick around for the segment on the economics of bulgaria but first we're going to do a data point closer to the news and the data point there is 5.23 trillion as in 5.23 trillion dollars which is the gross flow of premium payments to insurance companies around the world every
1: year for insurance companies providing auto policies has become more expensive due to the rising cost of repairs some carriers have pulled out of california
0: and in the bank account the crushing insurance increases now facing florida homeowners before hurricane season even enters its peak
2: because if you can create the danger the sense of danger then ships won't get insurance and you can do anything you like but you can pay the crew as much as you like the crew can be as brave as you like if they haven't got insurance the ship won't Sale. That's That's
0: of course an enormous number, but it's a number that is in flux, especially right now, given all of the changes we are facing in the world. Among them, climate change, of course, which has complicated the provision of insurance, especially homeowners insurance in the United States. Notably, it's become difficult to even acquire homeowners insurance in certain parts of the country, specifically Florida. But of course, the implications for insurance extend beyond that around the world from climate change. And it's not only climate change that is complicating the world of insurance these days. It's also geopolitical instability in the form of war that we're seeing in places ranging from Ukraine, of course, to the Middle East, to the prospect of major war in Asia, specifically Taiwan. So, that means a time of instability for a massive, massive industry like insurance. And we thought we would lift the hood and try to figure out what's going on in the insurance industry at these troubled times. So, Adam, a basic question. First, how do insurance companies go about calculating risk in the first place? I mean, do different insurance companies calculate risks differently from one another in any significant way, or is there just a consensus and
2: people just circle around the same consensus at any given time. What is the approach there? I think the critical thing to do is to break this industry down so as to be able to sort of, you know, get some idea of, of what kind of risks are needing to be calculated. And um of that gigantic t- I mean it's so staggering, isn't it? Both of you and I had to go and like check could this really be true? But these are OECD numbers and they're in relation to a global gdp of 100 trillion so 5% like which doesn't and then you look at numbers for the percentage of income that people lay out for the whole range of different types of insurances that they contribute to and you end up in the kind of range of 5 to 10% of income in one form or another being covered by insurance but what, what does this insurance category include it includes health insurance so private health insurance not through government schemes property and casualty risk so risk to everyone's assets and life insurance and it's when you add up all of those components that I think you begin to see like where this gigantic number comes from because of the 5 trillion not quite half is life insurance and then the rest is split kind of with a weighting towards property and casualty and then then health and so then if you think about how insurers would weigh the risks in those really big buckets it's actuarial science. This is where statistics originated in things like life tables because people have wanted to ensure lives for, for a very long time, for hundreds of years, back into the early modern period, the 1500s, 1400s. And to do that, you need statistics on you the know, frequency with which people die and that that's the basis on which life insurance tables are done there are various compounding risks you know if you're in a high risk category you have to do a medical and then they just they just have large scale databases which tell them what is the probability of a 55 year old man with no previous conditions but a smoking and this amount of drinking and you know what is the chance of that person dying on in the next 15 to 20 years and then you calculate the policy on that basis the same is also true for for health insurance risks And then you get into the big categories of property and and casualty. And there again, it's a question of evaluating the risks to particular homes, the risks to cars. These are the really big categories for property and casualty. And it's only really when you get into the boutique areas, maritime, for instance, which generates a premium flow of only about $35 billion. Again, I've checked and checked and checked this number because in my mind, like risky insurance, Lloyd's of London, maritime bulks, incredibly large. But as far as I can tell, its premium though is 35 billion, so 35 to 36. So it's two orders of magnitude away from the really big business of life insurance, like because it's 350, 3.5 trillion. It's two orders, it's 1%, if you like, of the kind of business that people do in the life insurance market, which is why I guess it can be organized through the relatively informal, decentralized networks of insurers at Lloyds. They will then have big historical tables on the risks of various types of maritime traffic. In fact, if you want to do the history of maritime transport, The compilations of records are extremely good because of insurance. If you then go into the even niche areas of political risk, we're talking basically about very small markets, relatively speaking. As far as I'm able to tell, all of the different categories of political risks so ranging from kidnap risk to risk of war to hijacking, various types of defaults to cyber, which seems to be one of the biggest categories, all of them all together add up to a premium flow of maybe 10 billion or slightly less than that, with cyber maybe taking a quarter of that nowadays. And so, And then you've got product recall, which would be the result of regulatory risk of different types. So there, in those areas where, frankly, the risks are presumably impossible to really calculate in any very meaningful way, the the scale of the exposure of the the industry is also relatively speaking quite small and some of it is government backed so the full-on political risk market emerged really from government sponsorship in the aftermath of World War II. Got it. Okay. So
0: it sounds like there, there are a wealth of statistics out there that basically everyone is drawing on. It's not like these companies are trying to gain an edge on
2: each other by trying to manipulate these numbers in a different way or something. There's a whole science. I mean, actuarial science is like a giant, you know, we have, we have master's programs for it at Columbia. And so there's a... There's a whole there's a whole um, discipline, really, that sits behind it. There's quite a lot of regulation to check. There can be, of course, competition, but that competition is driven as much as anything by what the businesses do with the money when you pay them the premium, right? Because the, an insurer is essentially a bit like a bank, a funny kind of savings bank, where you put your money in and only in terrible events do you suddenly get a big payout. So it's a little bit like a savings bank coupled with a lottery, coupled with a investment program because the the way the companies make the money is to go risky on the premiums. So to get the business, to get the deposit flow if you like, they offer really quite attractive premiums, make a loss on that side, and then compensate by making very good returns on your investments, you know, with the saving pot that you accumulate where people pay the premiums in. And so The competition for rates is heavily driven by the success of the investment side of the businesses.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah. It's funny to also think of winning the lottery in this case being something terrible happening to you and you needing to draw on your insurance. But as I mentioned, given climate change in the United States specifically, it's uh, gotten difficult for some homeowners to actually find any kind of insurance for their homes. And some people are going without insurance entirely, risking some kind of catastrophe happening. And I'm curious just how rare is it in history generally for there to be major financial assets like homes not backed by any insurance at all? I mean, does that imply that there will be someone to step in to provide insurance for for the sake of maintaining financial order? Are governments kind of inevitably going to step into the into the breach there?
2: Yeah, I think the crucial idea we also need to add into the mix here is collateral, right? Because the the reason most people get both home insurance and life insurance, in fact, relatively early on in their lives, is that mortgage lenders require people to have those two things, right? So certainly when I took out my first mortgage, I got my first life insurance contract. Because a lender on a property treats the property as collateral. And so they cannot, and are unwilling to hold or to offer loans on reasonable terms unless the collateral that they're lending on is itself secured. So a fire that burns down the house leaves them with a pot of money, which secures the loan they've made. Because if that wasn't the case, they'd have to demand loan shark type rates of most borrowers. But as long as the asset is backed by insurance, the home can be used as collateral. And that logic extends throughout the entire world of both private life and business you know so you know in a in the private world this is the logic say in insurance in in divorce settlements it's typical that a divorce settlement requires the person paying alimony to take out life insurance to cover the risk that they die and the the alimony stop payments stop if you're in any kind of business and all businesses are run with credit all of the assets that you're using as collateral for the credit are in one form or another insured. Um, Very, very few of them are just sort of naked loans. That would essentially be unsecured credit. And we know the kind of interest rates that you pay and the amount, the small amount of credit you can get. When we think about financial speculation, we, we generally underestimate this dimension of safety seeking and insurance in financial markets. You know, often when people look at, say, exchange rates, they'll say, oh, well, country X is having a crisis. I'm sure the currency will go down. And so the idea is that you would sell that currency and go long some other currency, and then you would win if your bet was right that the crisis produced a devaluation in the currency. Quite very small amounts of really large-scale speculation are done that way, because that's called an open position or an unhedged position or a naked position. And it literally means that you're just taking a big bet. What the vast majority of financial activity involves is betting one way on that and then betting the other way, back the other way. And what you do is the degree of your exposure is the margin between those two positions. And crucially, your assessment of the margin of those two positions against somebody else in the market who in parallel with you is taking the exact reverse. So you don't even, everyone positions themselves in the sense in the position of, a fully secured, fully hedged out investor. Um, so when, for instance, interest rates move between Japan and the United States, and you'd say American interest rates are moving up, Japanese interest rates are still very low, it's surely a one-way bet. Everyone's going to be piling into the dollar. That doesn't actually happen quite a lot of the time, because what's really crucial is not the, pri- not the interest rate you get in the two countries, but the cost of hedging the movement of the currencies against each other, and that's what actually drives the movement. So just to your point, there's much less uninsured, unhedged risk out there in the world than you might think. There is some, of course, and that's exposed, you know, famously when the water goes out, we see who's, you know, who's not wearing any bathing trunks. Like that does, that's true. Those elements of unsecured risk are in the system, but the vast majority of it is actually hedged in one form or another.
0: I imagine still that when insurance companies withdraw from a specific market, that that must affect the prices of the underlying assets. I mean, do prices get fundamentally distorted when insurance is no longer available? I mean, how do we know what the
2: price of things is without insurance? That's actually what a big bank run looks like nowadays. When a major, like Lehman or something like that, was a run on a derivative market, essentially, on its ability to use its debt as collateral or the, the assets it was holding. So basically, the folks that were willing to engage in derivative contracts, various, like it was a repo market one where essentially Lehman would post collateral and get cash and people were no longer willing to take that risk in relation to Lehman, and so Lehman went broke. When that happens, Lehman's, you know, Re- Lehman is revalued to zero at that moment. When it's no longer a responsible counterparty in a derivative market of this type, it basically ceases to exist as a financial actor. And yet yeah, when Florida real estate is no longer insurable, it's no longer good as collateral. It can't any longer really be used to raise mortgage debt. And so that at that point, it's cash buyers only and cash buyers who are willing to take the unhedged risk of owning a piece of real estate with no insurance on it which means you're exposed to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, in fact, the prices for those kind of assets fall really, really quickly. And this can't happen. I mean, Florida is one of the biggest real estate markets in the United States. So as this crisis, it's an ongoing crisis, and it's very dramatic across this system is happening, the government has stepped in to create, uh, they created this citizens insurance system in 2022 which is a public backstop, which provides a basic insurance cover for anyone in Florida who can't get private insurance. It's worth saying that there's another layer to this in the US, in notably, which is litigation. Because a contract between somebody taking out insurance and an insurer is just that it's a contract. And in that contract, it says in the event of XYZ, you're entitled to payment you know uh, of $100,000, $1 million dollars or whatever it is. But that contract and the terms of that contract can be contested in court. And so what's really going on in Florida, apart from anything else, is that the legal activity around insurance in Florida is absolutely off the charts. Something like two-thirds of all litigation around property insurance in the United States takes place in Florida, even though it accounts for less than 10% of the total market. Because various types of fraud arrive, the state has a system in place whereby the the legal costs uh, end up on the on the books of the person losing the case almost automatically, and so there is this what the insurance industry calls social inflation, which is an inflation in the costs of litigation around insurance. So much so that they then themselves will take out insurance against litigation costs, and anyone in the United States running a business is well advised to do that. So the it isn't just the underlying physical risk of hurricanes and flooding; it's the risk of how societies process that damage, and the costs that are induced by that, that in the end are crucial, because in the end, what's at stake here is not a destroyed house, but a contract over a house. And if you have a smooth system for just fully implementing those contracts, well then you know that makes things much more efficient. But if you have an American style system of just endless litigation, it's ultimately, the underlying cost plus the litigation damage that you really have to consider.
0: So now to shift to the other big risk that I mentioned at the beginning, namely war. I'm curious, how do wars historically affect insurance markets? You know, I imagine that uh, insurance companies know that war can be an enormous risk to their business models. I mean, is the insurance industry already now pricing in this shift to multipolarity, as it's often referred to? in our magazine and elsewhere, the kind of more disordered political landscape in the world that's leading to conflict, etc. Are they pricing that in as a financial
2: risk? Well, they're certainly trying to price it, because insurance markets can offer war risk. But generally speaking, it's very difficult to do a calculation on it. And what insurers hate most of all is bundled risk, right? What they want is risk which is spread out, which is random, which is not highly correlated. And the problem with issuing war insurance is that everyone claim it at once. <laughs> like, um, whereas what you really want is, you know, to ensure ships which occasionally sink in a broadly random pattern with no correlation between the sinkings. And so then you, you know, you offer insurance on each event separately, and they are indeed separate events. If if you wish offer war insurance, you'll find that lots of people will claim simultaneously. So it's a recipe for bankruptcy, unless it's covered by government backing. And places which are exposed to lots of war risk, like Israel, I was looking into this a little bit, have actually developed government sponsored insurance markets to ensure that, for instance, uh, maritime traffic, because Israel is obviously heavily dependent on maritime traffic, can continue into the ports of Israel whilst Hamas is trying to shoot rockets into southern Israel. And so there is a deal with a Lloyd syndicate in which the Israeli government accepts. Um, liability for a certain portion of the risk on maritime insurance coming in and out of Israel. There's negotiations going on right now, in fact, between the Israeli government and both shipping and airlines over the increased insurance costs for all of their operations. And if you go back to the 1940s, one of the earliest pieces of legislation, as far as I'm able to tell, before even the founding of the State of Israel, but in Mandate Palestine at the time, was in fact uh, a form of collective insurance against political damage to property. And that remains in force. So the Israeli state offers its citizens various types of insurance against terrorist attack or other sorts of property damage that result from war. I mean, re- as recently as 2012, in in one of the exchanges with Hamas there, where a, well, a lot of rockets were fired and hundreds of millions of dollars of damage were done, that was enacted in in uh, on the lebanese border as well so yes states that are involved in war know that if they want business to continue with anything like its normal levels they you need to act as the backstop and that was true in all the big wars of the 20th century and continues all the way down to the present
0: i mean I, i'm just curious you know often the, the the prospect of war in taiwan is referred to as the kind of big big looming risk. Is this kind of financial side of such conflict not being talked about enough? I mean, is there anyone that could kind of backstop
2: the fallout from that? Do people... it's, It's being talked about. I was literally at a meeting with a very, very large global insurer last week in which this was the topic. And I heard a very, very senior insurance executive say, you know, on this issue of how to define war, we haven't yet come up with a watertight wording. You know, somebody interested in political theory, and it was about Taiwan. And obviously one of the risks is that Taiwan, conflict over Taiwan, won't take the form of war, war, like in a conventional sense. It could be blockade or something like that. But yes, literally, I, she said, it was It was astonishing. It just as this phrase that just popped into the conversation. A very smart friend then responded to me and said, oh, no, Adam, it's the other way around. It's when the insurers say it's war that it is war. Uh, you know it's not it's not that you know it's not that they need to wait to clarify the legal definition it's in fact when they say it is that which i you know it it was a clever but not entirely serious point but it but nevertheless this issue is is absolutely real and it's being very explicitly talked about yeah i talk a lot to insurance companies They are some of the people that took up the polycrisis concept in fact if you look the the one of the industries which has been most interested in that idea is Is insurance. Interesting. Yeah.
0: I guess finally, I wanted to ask about the perspective of normal consumers of insurance. I mean, how do the growing risks that we've been talking about, geopolitical conflict on one hand, climate change on the other, what does that all mean for, yeah, customers of insurance? Does that mean we're all going to be paying more going forward? What exactly should we expect even if we're not in the kind of ground zero that is Florida or a conflict zone?
2: I think the General sense, I mean, sense is that this is an item which is going to rise in price. It's very difficult to see how you would not arrive at that conclusion, right? But the big drivers are going to be the categories like property. But generally speaking, you know, the advance of medical technology means that treatment costs and so on are rising. On the other hand, your risk of actually dying is going down very dramatically across a whole range of diseases. But on balance, yes, you'd expect this to go up, but the issue is going to be how we collectively manage that risk how much of it do we absorb into the big de-risking mechanisms which range from unemployment and health insurance in some countries all the way through to you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac which backstop the entire american mortgage system or frankly at the most highest level of abstraction the kind of you know crazy things that central banks do in the middle of financial crises to ensure that the entire financial system that's all de-risking collectively managed through the public balance sheet that's one way of doing it and now the other end of the line is you know somebody you know scraping by on a lower middle income desperately trying to get you know a mortgage and finding they can't get they can't get the insurance they need the spectrum is going to range from one end to the other and i think it's one way of thinking about many of the big hot button issues of politics over coming decades is going to be how we manage collective de-risking mechanisms is really quite a quite an interesting way and an illuminating optic on big challenges going forward got it
0: yeah so insurance can sound like a boring topic but it's clearly at the center of all of our lives even if we don't notice it all the time anyway we do need to leave the conversation here for now but stick around we will be back in a second to talk about the economics of bulgaria This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is hes great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, I, you know. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and and, and and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, Maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways, and that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down, and that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do, and it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Center for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back our next data point is 995 euros. That is the average gross monthly salary in Bulgaria, which makes it one of the poorest countries in the European Union. Actually, Bulgaria had the lowest level of GDP per capita in the EU in 2022. So yeah, in the spirit of our country segments, we thought we would dig into the economy of Bulgaria. So Adam, obviously, as I mentioned, Bulgaria is uh, by plenty of measures, the the poorest EU country. And if the point of the EU is to unify its member states, can that project even work for a country this poor? I mean, is Bulgaria on a path of convergence with the rest of the European bloc? Uh,
2: Yes, broadly speaking, it is. Um, It's slow uh, and painful and not all that steady, but it's in on a convergent path. In the early 90s, it was closer to about 40% of EU GDP per capita on average. Um, and now it's around about the 55 to 59% mark. So at about 60% of the average for the EU as a whole. That is to put that in uh, context or to provide a comparative standard quite similar to the disparity between Mississippi, for instance, the state of Mississippi, that is, and the United States average, um, the numbers you quoted are uh, nominal. In other words, just face value um, euro figures for monthly incomes. They don't take account of how much cheaper it is to live um, in Bulgaria. If you do purchasing power parity adjustment uh, and use a, a global standard, what we're seeing is that Bulgaria, at the end of the Soviet period, was a high middle income country, uh, nine to ten thousand dollars per capita per head per year. And that doubled to 2008 and then rose by a further 50%. So now Bulgaria is comfortably in the high high income bracket, really $27,000 per head per year, once you allow for the much lower cost of living um, in Bulgaria than in Germany or France. You can buy a a house here uh, in the countryside for 30, 40, 50,000 euros, which of course you can't anywhere else in the in the EU. Um, and if you spend any time here, it's a country with a very high standard of living by any global measure. Um, lots of really nice cars driving around, life expectancy, which compares with that of the United States, infant mortality, which is better. It's a, it's a high functioning um, society by any measure. One of the most promising developments for Bulgaria from an EU point of view is the scale of the next-gen EU recovery funds. So these were the funds that were put together during the COVID period. And if you're looking for an acceleration of Bulgarian convergence with the rest of the EU, this is, I think, where Brussels would point to because... Bulgaria, given the size of its economy, is receiving one of the most generous allocations, up to 7.5 billion euros in the period between 2022 and 2026. That's up to 12.5% of Bulgarian GDP in 2019. That's Marshall Plan money. That's serious money. But the process of adjustment has not been steady. And I think the real worry for Bulgaria is that the rate of convergence with the EU was once faster. And the the real glory days are the period immediately around Bulgaria's accession to the EU, which finally happened in 2007. And there was a huge wave of investment in the period between 2005 and 2008. And 2008 matters because it's the global financial crisis. And it kind of shudders to a halt at that point. Um, and FDI, which peaked at astonishingly high levels um, around uh, 2008, um, collapses in the, in the period that comes after that um, to much more... Uh, normal in global terms levels, 3 4% of GDP from figures over 20%. So Bulgaria really was, a, especially for German capital, a favoured uh, location for investment. Another drama, I think, that really concerns Bulgarians is that A, the pace of investment has fallen from a very high rate in the early 2000s to a lower late, which suggests a slower pace of convergence. But there's also deep anxiety here about human capital so Bulgaria is a country whose population peaked at the end of the communist period. The population has since shrunk from round about 8.9 million um, in 1988, 1989 to 6.9 million today. And that's a combination of classically European slow demographic growth on the one hand and emigration um, and I think the third element that concerns people and should concern people is inequality. Because though, if you go to Sofia, the, the capital, you gain the impression of a really developed society. Um, GDP per capita in the Sofia region is well above the EU average. If you go out into the countryside, you have a completely different picture. The, the ratio of income within Bulgaria between the most developed parts, the capital city and the hinterland, the rural areas of Bulgaria is a ratio of six to one. Basically, there's a huge disparity between urban and rural opportunities.
0: So as you've mentioned, it wasn't so long ago that Bulgaria was part of a different bloc, uh, namely the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. You know, you've described the ways that Bulgaria has benefited from being in the EU, but did it also benefit from being part of this broader Soviet project?
2: Well, um, you know, pro-Russian, pro-communist, socialist Bulgarians would emphatically say so. Bulgaria was the model member of the Warsaw Pact and Comic-Con, the... Bulgarians understood and the Bulgarian Communist Party understood their relationship with the Soviet Union to be. They they thought of themselves as the closest allies that, that Moscow had. Bulgaria during the Soviet period experienced a huge leap forward in terms of urbanization, industrialization, education, falling infant mortality, female empowerment. On all of these metrics, Bulgaria's development lurches forward after 1945. The question, of course, is whether all of this could have been achieved without communist rule. And that is the question which preoccupies my colleagues who are economic historians of Bulgaria. We'll never know, but counterfactually, that's the the question is like, could have this been achieved? And was Bulgaria a society already on the path to modernization? It's not a question, but it's a question that haunts much of Eastern Europe. And Bulgaria is certainly one of those countries with deep nostalgia for the communist period in at least a substantial minority of the population. So one
0: thing that is not in dispute, I think, is that Bulgaria has been plagued by corruption for years. Uh, The problem and the associated scandals have produced political instability, leading to five elections in the last three years alone. So does this corruption problem have an underlying economic source? I mean, what are the economics of this kind of endemic corruption that Bulgaria has?
2: I think part of it goes back to the circumstances of the end of communist rule, which were a managed transition. So the Bulgarian Communist Party transitions into the Bulgarian Socialist Party. Um, You end up in a period of relatively chaotic disorganized privatization and disaggregation of the Bulgarian uh, state-controlled economy. This is the period in which you see the emergence of what the Bulgarians themselves call the mafia, um, famously based in the city of Varna, um, where you have really the tying together of banking interest, business interest, gambling, prostitution, people smuggling, the whole works. Um, Some of it then organized in corporate form and none of it unafraid to you know, turn to the gun to sort out uh, issues. So there's a sprinkling of very, very high profile assassinations um, that continue into the early 2000s and leave a kind of shadow over Bulgaria. That is one element. And it persists to the present day. There was still quite a lot of talk of mafia influence. At another level, there is deep entanglement between political parties in general and business uh, activity. Uh, And this is, as it were, the element of corruption which continues to dog Bulgarian politics all the way down to the present day. Most folks won't have registered this fact, but Bulgaria has been through five elections in the last three years in a desperate effort to compose a viable majority. And the third level of corruption, which is the the one that is probably most damaging to Bulgarian society, is that all of this ultimately then affects the public procurement system. So see, I'm trying to distinguish between different levels of corruption operating here. It isn't a society where you expect to be stopped by a traffic cop and you know he's going to demand 10 euros to let you pass. That isn't going on on any substantial scale. But there is this sort of element of organized crime. There is an element of political manipulation. And then there is absolutely gigantic manipulation of public procurement, which accounts for 12% of Bulgaria's GDP. And within that system, it's quite clear that politically connected businesses, even if they're less efficient, according to the economic data, are systematically privileged. And I think that's where the real damage is done to Bulgaria's economic development on a large scale, because 12% of GDP, that's... That's really a significant slice of the economy that's being affected here. And it deals with every element of infrastructure, power supply, of telecoms, the whole works. It's a it's a, a real a morass of insider dealing, essentially.
0: Yeah, this bears on my next question, which is about Bulgarian foreign policy, specifically its support for Ukraine, which comes despite the widespread sympathy for Russia among the population that you've alluded to. It seems like there are political reasons for that kind of support, but I wonder if there are economic reasons as well. I mean, Bulgaria does make a lot of weapons, right? I mean, has that played a role in terms of its uh, Ukraine policy more generally?
2: Yeah, this is exactly one of the areas where Bulgaria really flies under the radar because Bulgaria, which actually also hesitated for a long time to openly supply weapons to Ukraine, um, has avoided really being singled out as 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 sort of vacillating and unreliable in its support for the Western position. Though opinion polling clearly shows that the solid majority of Bulgarians wish that it was able to adopt a neutral position. And so here, a, a, a Bulgarian politician has to tread very carefully. Either you decidedly go into the Russophobic camp and position yourself on the pro-Western side. And that's not a matter of hostility to Russian people or the Russian language or Russian culture, but a hostility to Russia's influence. Um, or like many Bulgarian politics, you play the center ground. And critically here, President Rumen Radev, who has really emerged as the kingmaker in this period of huge instability in Bulgarian politics, he's you know a classic instance of this, Willingness to tack back and forth. I mean, the man's a the former air force pilot, uh, a MiG twenty nine pilot. You know, a product really of the transition from a Warsaw Pact Bulgarian military to a NATO orientated military. But he much prefers Russian fighters apparently to to their Amer- their American equivalents. And and you tack back and forth. It is true that in this tacking back and forth, economics plays a role, but it's quite ambiguous because. Bulgaria has large Soviet-era armaments factories, but they are in parts of the country which, on balance, favor political parties which tend to be pro-Russian. And so though the Ukrainians since 2014 have been buying large amounts of Bulgarian ammunition, they do so rather discreetly. And in the current situation, the, the deal is not that Bulgaria proudly announces that it's supplying the Ukrainian military with the shells that it's going to kill Russians with. Um, But rather that the street, otherwise not specified international arms purchases arrive in Sofia, a deal is done, the weapons leave Bulgaria in a deniable form with the the Bulgarian political class able to insist that no deals are being done with Ukraine, except it all just ends up in Poland, is paid for by the United States and is supplied to the Ukrainians. And armaments exports have doubled in the last year. They now account for 2% of Bulgarian GDP, which is a large slice of GDP for one sector, supplying essentially a certain number of anti-aircraft guns and a huge amount of artillery ammunition. So there's a, there's a really fascinating under-the-covers kind of struggle going on in which, indeed, large quantities of ammunition is being shipped, are being shipped whilst the political class manages to find ways to turn a blind eye. So finally, I wanted to
0: ask about another famous export of Bulgaria's, aside from guns, namely roses or rose oil. I mean, how exactly did that industry develop and how important an industry is roses right now?
2: I mean, it's an extraordinary story because the guns and the roses, yes, get it. The guns and the roses both come from the same place. Uh, The region around Kazanlak is both where the armaments factories are and where the roses are grown. And it's an instance, another instance really, of a Bulgarian success story that to a degree depended on its insertion into a bigger sphere of influence or empire because the culture of perfume that the Bulgarians were inserted into was profoundly shaped by Arab culture, by the perfuming and the rose uh, cultivation of Syria and by The early 1800s, a very substantial trade was developing. It's an extraordinary business because it's a bit like whiskey distilling, except you do it with rose petals. So you take three and a half kilos of rose petals, and if you're clever and you know how to do it, you boil them down with water, and then you distill them again and again and again in what really just looks like a whiskey still, and you skim off the the oil, and out of 3.5 kilos of rose petals, suitably diluted and cooked, you end up with one gram of rose oil um, which is then an essential ingredient in the booming um, perfume industry of the 19th century and from the middle of the 19th century onwards entrepreneurial Bulgarian families begin to take control of a trade in which they had previously simply been the peasants who grew the, the petals and established themselves as major merchants um, of rose oil and by 1912, at its peak, and that really was its peak, the Bulgarian rose oil exports account for seven percent of Bulgaria's exports, along with tobacco and, and wool. So, at the time, for what was then still a very poor agrarian economy, this is a very high value. It was it was more expensive than gold, um, because it's so highly concentrated and so valuable for the perfume industry. Over the course of the 20th century, considerably displaced by synthetic production, basically. Um, but still the, still an ongoing production process. Some of it makes its way to grass, which we discussed, I think, in an earlier episode of Ones and Twos, where the French perfume industry is based.
0: Well, yeah, I can recommend that people go back and try to listen to the uh, segment we did on perfume, which is fascinating in its own right. But in the meantime, I guess people have learned that there's some connection between guns and roses in Bulgaria. That seems to be a takeaway here. That could be a kind of trivia question as two major exports of bulgaria but i don't know if axel rose had that in mind but anyway we will leave it here for now and be back next week ones and twos is written and edited by me cameron abadi along with adam twos it's produced by claudia tady laura rossbrow tellum rob Sachs, and dan efron this show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can tweet us. That's at Pod. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back in your feed next week.
1: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
1: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones, supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. in each episode we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world like giving a gift
0: you want to make it tasteful you want to make it thoughtful you thought about the other individual you thought about what their likes and dislikes are
1: or creating a fiction taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder as all negotiations are. Each week you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an Everyday Ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.